Section 9 of My Life in the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers. My Life in the South by Jacob Stroyer. Section 9. Chapter Three, Part Two. De Burg, the Overseer. De Burg, the Overseer of whom I have spoken, was a small man of light complexion, and very light hair. If my readers could have been in Fort Sumter in July eighteen sixty four, they would have seen De Burg with a small bar of iron, or a piece of shell in his hand forcing the surviving portion of the negroes back into line, and adding to these other negroes kept in the rat-hole, as reserves to fill the places of those who were killed and wounded. They would also have heard him swearing at the top of his voice, while forcing the negroes to rearrange themselves in line from the base of the fort to the top. This arrangement of the negroes enabled them to sling to each other the bags of sand which was put in the baskets on the top of the fort. My readers ask, what was the sand put on the fort for? It was to smother the fuses of such shells as reached the ramparts before bursting. After the bombardment of Fort Sumter in 1863, by the Union forces, its top of fourteen or sixteen feet in thickness, built of New Hampshire granite, was left bare. From that time, all through 1864, the shells were so aimed as to burst right over the fort, and it was pieces of these shells which flew in every direction that were so destructive. The fuses of many of these shells fired on Fort Sumter, did not burn in time to cause the shells to burst before falling. Now, as the shells fell on the rampart of the fort, instead of falling and bursting on the stone, they buried themselves harmlessly in the sand, which put out the fuse and also kept them from bursting. But while the destruction of life was lessened by the sand, it was fully made up by the hand of that brute, the overseer. God only knows how many negroes he killed in Fort Sumter under the shadow of night. Every one he reached, while forcing the slaves back into working position, after they had been scattered by the shells, he would strike on the head with the piece of iron he carried in his hand, and as his victim fell, would cry out to some other negro, Put that fellow in his box, meaning his coffin. Whether the superior officers in Fort Sumter knew that de Burg was killing the negroes off almost as fast as the shells from Fort Wagner, or whether they did not know and did not care, I never have learned, but I have every reason to believe that one of them at least, namely, Major John Johnson, would not have allowed such a wholesale slaughter 
had he known. On the other hand, I believe that Captain J.C. Mitchell was not only mean enough to have allowed it, but that he was fully as heartless himself. Whatever became of de Burgh, whether he was killed in Fort Sumter or not, I never knew. Our superior officers. The two officers in command of Fort Sumter in July of 1864 were Captain J.C. Mitchell and Major John Johnson. Major Johnson was as kind, gentle, and humane to the Negroes as could have been expected. On the other hand, the actions of Captain Mitchell were harsh and very cruel. He had a bitter hatred toward the Yankees, and during the reign of shells on Fort Sumter, he sought every opportunity to expose the Negroes to as much danger as he dared. I remember that one night Captain Mitchell ordered us outside of Fort Sumter to a projection of the stone bed upon which the fort was built, right in front of Fort Wagner. At that place we were in far greater danger from the deadly missiles of the Union forces than we were exposed to on the inside of Sumter, and I could see no other reasons for this ordering us outside of the fort that night than that we might be killed off faster. It seemed that during the incessant firing on Fort Sumter, the officers held a consultation as to whether it was not best to evacuate the fort. It was at this time that it was rumored, a rumor that we had every reason to believe, that Captain Mitchell plotted to lock us Negroes up in our quarters in Sumter, known as the Rat Hole, and put powder to it, and arrange it so that both the Negroes and the Yankees should be blown up when the latter should have taken possession, after the evacuation of the fort, by the Confederates. But we learned that Major John Johnson, who has since become an Episcopal minister in Charleston, South Carolina, wholly refused to agree with Captain Mitchell in such a barbarous and cowardly act, and, as though Providence were watching over the innocent and oppressed Negroes, and over the Yankees as well, because they were fighting in a righteous cause. Captain Mitchell's career, and further chances of carrying out his cruel intentions, were cut short. He was mortally wounded by the sharpshooters of Fort Wagner on the 14th of July, 1864, and died four hours afterwards. Our Rations in Sumter the working forces of Negroes in Sumter, with the exception of the boys who carried messages to the different parts of the fort day and night, were locked up days and turned out nights to work. We drew our rations of hardtack and salt pork twice a day. Mornings when we ceased work and turned in for the day, and again between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, so as to have supper eaten, in time to go to work at dark. We often ate our salt pork raw with the hard tack, as there were no special means of cooking in the negro's apartment. We were not only in danger while at work, 
from the continued rain of shells, but oftentimes, when we were put in line to draw our rations, some of us were killed or wounded. I cannot say how they got fresh water in Fort Sumter, as I do not remember seeing any brought there in boats, neither did I notice any conveniences there for the catching of rain-water. The water which we negroes used was kept in large hogsheads with coal-tar in them. I do not know what the tar was put in the water for, unless it was for our health. The rat-hole into which we were locked was like a sweat-box. It was so hot and close that, although we were exposed to death by shells when we were turned out to work, we were glad to get into the fresh air. We had little cups in which they used to give us whiskey mornings when we went in, and again when we were going out to work at night. I don't know how many of the forty survivors, of the three hundred and sixty of us who were carried into the fort in the summer of 1864, besides myself, are still alive. But if there are any with the keen tenderness of a negro, they cannot help joining me in an undying sense of gratitude to Major John Johnson, not only for his kind and gentle dealings with us, which meant so much to a negro in the days of slavery, but also for his humane protection, which saved us from some of the danger from shells to which we were exposed in Sumter. A short time after Captain J. C. Mitchell had been killed, Major Johnson was dangerously wounded in the head by a piece of shell. My last night in Fort Sumter, and the glorious end of the war. During the time we spent in Fort Sumter, we had not seen a clear day or night. In harmony with the continual danger by which we were surrounded, the very atmosphere wore the pall of death, for it was always rainy and cloudy. The mutilated bodies of the negroes mingled with the black mud and water in the fort yard, added to the awfulness of the scene. Pieces of bombshells and other pieces of iron, and also large southern pine timbers were scattered all over the yard of the fort. There was also a little lime house in the middle of the yard, into which we were warned not to go when seeking places of safety from the deadly missiles at the cry of the sentinel. The orders were that we should get as near the center of the fort yard as possible, and lie down. The reason for this was that the shells which were fired upon Sumter were so measured that they would burst in the air, and the pieces would generally fly toward the sides of the fort. But the orders were not strictly carried out, because at the warning cries of the sentinel we became confused. That night, at the cry of the sentinel, I ran and lay down on one of the large southern pine timbers, and several of my fellow negroes followed and piled in upon me. Their weight was so heavy that I cried out as for life, 
the sense of that crush I feel at certain times, even now. At the next report of a shell, I ran toward the limehouse, but someone tripped me up, and by the time I had got to my feet again, twelve or thirteen others were crowded into it. Another negro and I reached the doorway, but we were not more than there before a mortar shell came crushing down upon the little limehouse, and all within were so mangled that their bodies were not recognizable. Only we two were saved. My companion had one of his legs broken, and a piece of shell had wounded me over my right eye, and cut my upper lip. At the moment I was wounded, I was not unconscious, but I did not know what had hurt me. I became almost blind from the effect of my wounds, but not directly after I was wounded, and I felt no pain for a day or so. With other wounded I was taken to the bomb-proof in the fort. I shall never forget this first and last visit to the hospital department. To witness the rough handling of the wounded patients, to see them thrown on a table as one would a piece of beef, and to see the doctor use his knife and saw cutting off a leg or arm and sometimes both, with as much indifference as if he were simply cutting up beef, and to hear the doctor say of almost every other one of these victims, after a leg or an arm was amputated, put that fellow in his box, meaning his coffin, was an awful experience. After the surgeon had asked to whom I belonged, he dressed my wounds. My readers will remember that I stated that no big boat could run to Fort Sumter at that time, on account of the bombardment. We had to be conveyed back to St. John's Island Wharf in rowboats, which was the nearest distance a steamer could go to Fort Sumter. As one of those rowboats was pushed out to take the dead and wounded from the fort, and as the former men were put into the boat, which was generally done before they put in the latter, fortunately, just before the wounded were put in, a parrot shell was fired into it from Fort Wagner by the Union forces, which sunk both the boat and the coffins with their remains. My reader would ask how the Confederates disposed of the Negroes who were killed in Fort Sumter. Those who were not too badly mutilated were sent over to the city of Charleston, and were buried in a place which was set apart to bury the Negroes. But others, who were so badly cut up by shells, were put into boxes with pieces of iron in them, and carried out a little way from Sumter, and thrown overboard. I was then taken to John's Island Wharf, and from there to the city of Charleston in a steamer, and carried to Dr. Ragg's Hospital, where I stopped until September. Then I was sent back home to my master's plantation, quoting the exact words of Major John Johnson, a Confederate officer under whom I was a part of the time, at the above-named place, I would say, quote, July 7th, Fort Sumter's third great bombardment, lasting sixty days and nights, 
with a total of 14,666 rounds fired at the fort, with 81 casualties. Close quote. What took place after? I said that after I got well enough to travel, I was sent back to my master's plantation about a hundred miles from the city of Charleston, in central South Carolina. That was in September of 1864, and I, with the rest of my fellow Negroes, on this extensive plantation, and with other slaves all over the South, were held in suspense, waiting the final outcome of the Emancipation Proclamation, issued January 1863. But, as the war continued, it had not taken effect until the spring of 1865. Here I had less work than before the war, for the nearer the war approached its close, the less the slaves had to do, as the masters were at the end of their wits what to do. In the latter part of 1864, General Sherman, with his army of a hundred thousand men, and almost as many stragglers, covered the space of about sixty miles in width while marching from Georgia through South Carolina. The army camped around Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, for a short time. Early in the spring of 1865, the commissary building first took fire, which soon spread to such extent that the whole city of Columbia was consumed. Just a few houses on the suburbs were left. The commissary building was set on fire by one of the two parties, but it was never fully settled whether it was done by General Sherman's men or by the Confederates, who might have, as surmised by some, as they had to evacuate the city, set it on fire to keep General Sherman's men from getting the food. After this, Columbia was occupied by a portion of Sherman's men while the others marched on towards North Carolina. THE GLORIOUS END In closing this brief sketch of my experiences in the war, I would ask my reader to go back over the war a little with me. I want to show them a few of the dark pictures of the slave system. Hark! I hear the clanking of the plowman's chains in the fields. I hear the tramping of the hoe-hands. I hear the coarse and harsh voice of the negro driver, and the shrill voice of the white overseer, swearing at the slaves. I hear the swash of the lash upon the backs of the unfortunates. I hear them crying for mercy from the merciless. Amidst these cruelties, I hear the fathers and mothers pour out their souls in prayer. O oh Lord, how long! and their cries not only awakened the sympathy of their white brothers and sisters of the North, but also mightily trouble the slave masters of the South. The firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861 brought hope to the slaves that the long-looked-for year of jubilee was near at hand, and though the South won victory after victory, and the Union reeled to and fro like a drunken man, the Negroes never lost hope, but faithfully supported the Union cause with their prayers. Thank God, where Christianity exists, slavery cannot exist. At last came freedom, and what joy it brought! 
I am now standing, in imagination, on a high place just outside the city of Columbia, in the spring of 1865. The stars and stripes float in the air. The sun is just making its appearance from behind the hills, and throwing its beautiful light upon green bush and tree. The mockingbirds and jaybirds sing this morning more sweetly than ever before. Beneath the flag of liberty there is congregated a perfect network of the emancipated slaves from the different plantations, their swarthy faces from a distance looking like the smooth water of a black sea. Their voices, like distant thunder, rend the air. Old master gone away, and the darkies all at home. There must be now the kingdom come, and the year of jubilee. The old men and women, bent over by reason of age and servitude, bound from their staves, praising God for deliverance. End of section 9 And End of My Life in the South by Jacob Stoyer